Welcome to Primarily 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 Democratic primary. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. So this week on Primarily 2020, I am going to be speaking with DNC member and Democrats Abroad Global Chair Julia Bryan about the DNC meeting that was held in San Francisco last week. Um, it was a really fiery meeting with lots of interesting stuff happening, including a lot of candidate presentations. Um, and so lots to get into there. But before we do that, um, I want to do a quick news roundup. And I also want to talk a little bit about just my impressions um, after coming back from my holiday in the US where I was for two weeks. Um, so to do that last part first, um, I had a wonderful holiday. Thank you for asking. Yes, my vacation was delightful. Um, we were in both Oregon and California. Uh, the second half of the trip, we were in San Francisco and then Yosemite National Park. Um, and I was completely inaccessible to all news for the final week of the trip, pretty much, um, because Yosemite has no Wi-Fi anywhere in the park, um, as far as I could see, nor do they have mobile phone reception anywhere. So the only time I ever got to check out what was happening in the world was when I walked past the newspaper stand at the local shop and looked at the headlines. And they were so depressing that I kind of looked away again and went, okay, I'm going to go back to hiking. Um, so I have not been for that week. I was not at all in the loop of what was happening in the political process. And I found that very mentally healthy for me. Um, I probably should switch off more often. Um, but I was looking around and talking to people and just gathering impressions about kind of America and where the country is right now. Um, and there were just a few things that really struck me as a, just as an outsider, almost as a as a foreigner, if I if I think of myself as a foreigner for this purpose, visiting the country. Um, and the first one is that Trump's nasty streak and the kind of bitterness and the spitefulness of him is so rare in the actual country. I think living outside of it, um, we see so much of the anger and vituperative, argumentative, angry, hateful politics. Um, and we see so many things about gun violence and um, um, really horrible things happening in the American news that I think people outside the country, um, even people who are, you know, deeply connected to it like I am, I think we sometimes lose track of the fact that the way that Trump behaves and the the kind of awful, nasty, bitter, divisive world in which we all live politically has almost nothing to do with the American people who are certainly with plenty of exceptions, but most of the people that I came across um, in my trips compared to European people who are also lovely in their own ways. Um, but the Americans as a people, as an as a group, an entity, are, are largely just very kind, warm, hospitable people. And I don't think the rest of the world is getting a very good picture of us right now. Um, but people are lovely and thoughtful and contemplative and friendly and eager to make connections with each other. Um, and I think that's just really something that I value about us. And I don't want it to get lost in all this anger. Um, and the other thing, obviously, I was at Yosemite National Park. It was just spectacular. Um, but all across California, I haven't spent a lot of time in California. We were in San Francisco, then we drove um, across from from, from San Francisco to, to Yosemite, spent a lot of time in the park. There is just so much in the country that is just physically amazing. Um, we forget from a European perspective, um, the, just the vast size of the country, but also the sheer variety of landscapes that we have to offer. Um, the national park system is um, obviously has preserved some of the most spectacular wilderness in the world. Um, and I was really struck when I was um, wandering in Mariposa Grove, which is the scene of the site of some of the world's oldest redwood trees. In fact, the world's oldest redwood trees. But absolutely beautiful place, by the way. Um, I was stopped by a friendly and chatty man um, who was traveling through the parks with his wife. Um, he stopped to just chat to me and see, ask me how I was finding my trip. And um, he found out that my daughter, I have a six-year-old daughter, she, she was loving her trip. And he asked her, 
Um, you know, she, she, if, if she was a, an American, I said, yeah, she has got a U.S. passport. And he said, well, congratulations then, this is yours. And um, he and I chatted and he just had such a great sense of pride and ownership and um, honor that the America, the American national park system, he was traveling around the country, visiting various different national parks. He was expounding to me the beauties of Grand Canyon national park and, uh, uh, Yellowstone national park. And, um, and I thought to myself, you know what, he's right about that. We, we are, we are blessed to have such a wealth of, um, amazing landscape and and the american national park system is a is a miracle really it's one of the oldest um national park systems in the world established in i think around 1890 um yosemite itself was established in 1890 um and for you know well over 100 years we've been protecting and preserving um these national treasures and i think that's something that all of us should should honor and and treasure not least because um it is not taken for granted um, and then on the other, and then the, on the other hand, you think about outside of the excellence of the people and the beautiful landscape and the wilderness and, and so much richness that we have to offer. America still has a lot of problems. And that really came clear, um, in my trip as well. I was really, truly shocked and horrified by the amount of, um, crippling poverty and homelessness that was visibly on display, both in Portland, Oregon and in San Francisco, um, in the midst of two cities, which themselves are wealthy, prosperous and successful cities, um, with, um, in liberal leaning states run by democratic governments. Um, but we still, um, the problem of economic inequality is very much on display in what I would, from my perception is, um, more homelessness and more poverty than I had seen in those cities before. Um, so I think for me, it really reminded me that whilst individual people um, have their struggles and there are people who are poor due to bad choices that they have made, um, at least in part, Poverty itself exists because the systems have failed. Um, and right now, America has a lot of failed systems that are causing a rise in um, poverty and crippling poverty, even amongst some of the wealthiest parts of our nation. And we absolutely must get serious about solving it. Um, and so that's some of the things that really struck me. Um, feel free to write in or shout out to me um, in, an, in a voicemail any thoughts that you might have about kind of where the country is right now. Um, and I just wanted to do a quick news roundup, obviously, on the primary. Because a lot has happened since last we spoke. Um, obviously, I didn't do an episode last week because I was completely out of the range of the internet. Um, and in that time, we've had quite a few dropouts um, from the race. So probably the, the most high profile, um, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York has withdrawn from the race. Gillibrand was um, um, never really, her campaign never really took off, even though on paper she has a lot of credentials. Um Senator, I'm uh, sorry, Governor Jay Inslee of Washington State um, is also stepping out of the race. Jay Inslee stepped into the race, um, very much wanting to lead from a climate change point of view um, and make that the signature of his campaign, which he did. And I think many people would say he had a lot of impact on that issue, but his campaign itself um, did, again, not really take fire. Um, Representative Seth Moulton, of Massachusetts, my home state, has also stepped out of the race. Uh, Moulton is a um, um, somebody who entered kind of wanting to have more of a foreign policy and a military conversation. Um, and I think in the last podcast, I spoke already about the fact that John Hickenlooper of Colorado had withdrawn. All of these withdrawing candidates um, will be pursuing other offices. Kirsten Gillibrand um, and Seth Moulton will be running for re-election to their congressional seats. Uh, John Hickenlooper um, will be running for Colorado Colorado um, Senate, um, and we wish him well in that because that's a critical Senate pickup opportunity for us. And Jay Inslee will be running for re-election in Washington State, um, which collectively it feels like a trend of what we're seeing is a lot of people dropping out 
ahead of the next debate, which is um, on the 12th of September. A lot fewer people will qualify for that debate than qualified for previous ones. And I think, therefore, it was always designed by the DNC as being a moment where the field might winnow, um, having given people a, a chance to be heard in the previous two debates. Um, the standard for entry into the next debate was much higher. Um, it was roughly double the entry criteria. You need 2%. Um, uh, you need to appear in 2% in uh, at least three polls, and you need to have, I think, about 140,000 donors. Um, so it's it has indeed been a winnowing point. Um, I just want to thank and um, appreciate all of those candidates who are withdrawing, not for withdrawing, but for their service to this country um, and for the work that they have been doing and will continue to do in office. Um, I don't think any of them disgraced themselves. I think all of them ran good campaigns in what was an extremely competitive primary where I think it's really difficult for anyone to get any kind of attention. So um, I, I don't think we should uh, look at that as in any way um, that they were weak candidates or failed candidates. I just think when you've got initially 24, 25 people in a race, there just isn't room for everyone to be heard. So it's probably just as well that they withdraw and focus on where they can be heard. Another piece of news, um, while I was in America, in California, the DNC was having a meeting in San Francisco as well. Um, we'll cover that in the rest of this conversation, but the DNC meeting in San Francisco um, prompted a lot of controversy about a decision that they made, um, or rather the reinforcement of a decision that they had previously made not to allow for um, single-issue debates. Um, there was an attempt by some at the meeting to bring about a resolution that would call for a climate change debate as prompted and requested by a number of activists and indeed by many candidates. Um, that effort was ultimately not successful and the previous DNC policy of no single issue debates remains. We'll talk about that further in my conversation with Julia later in the episode. And finally, um, last night, the Washington Post published a story um, about uh, some issues that Joe Biden has been having. Um, Joe Biden has um, been speaking frequently on the campaign trail, telling the story about pinning a medal on a serviceman who did not feel he deserved that medal. It was a very heartwarming and a very beautifully expressed story, um, but unfortunately, it was not accurate. Um, in this space, the, the, the Washington Post fact-checked um, the Biden's story, um, which he's repeated a number of times, and they say, quote, the upshot in the space of three minutes, Biden got the time period, the location, the heroic act, the type of medal, the military branch, and the rank of the recipient wrong, as well as his own role in the ceremony. What seems to have happened is that Biden was conflating um, probably three separate instances um, on issues into one kind of better told story. Um, I suspect, I, although I have no kind of special window into Joe Biden's heart or mind, but it seems fairly clear to me that that was not an intentional misleading of the public, but rather a, a brain slip and his mind working to conflate um, a number of things together with each other. Um, but it's uh, unfortunate for a number of reasons, one of which is that it reinforces some concerns that people have about Biden from previous campaigns. Joe Biden, um, who I think is fantastic, has also been prone to a lot of gaffes of this type. And specifically in a previous presidential campaign, he um, was he was um, wound up withdrawing early um, in a previous run because he was caught plagiarizing uh, speeches from uh, UK President Neil, uh, UK politician rather, Neil Kinnock. Um, so this just feeds into an ongoing problem that Joe Biden has had with um, speaking accurately and uh, correctly and originally on the campaign trail. Of course, you have to put that into context with the fact that um, Joe Biden's misleading but um, probably confused account of his initiative um, runs up against a president who routinely makes up facts and lies through his teeth all the time to the American public. So um, how big of a problem is it in that context? 
I mean, I don't know, you be the judge, um, but I do think Biden should should think about how he can be more careful and more deliberate in the way that he expresses himself, um, certainly, especially if it's something like that, which is going to be a repeated story over and over again in the campaign trail. Um, it's disappointing that even his staff didn't pick him up on it and uh, work to correct um, the way that he was telling that story. So um, hopefully Biden will get better at this. Um, it's not great. Uh, it's probably not the end of the world either, but it's worth noting. Okay. So without further ado, um, let's get on to our conversation with Julia. So I want to welcome Julia Bryan to the 20, Primarily 2020 podcast. Julia is the chair of Democrats Abroad International, an organization of which I am a member um, and uh, active participant. Um, and I'll let her introduce herself generally, but um, Julia is just a fantastic and fascinating person to talk to always. But particularly this week, I was keen to hear from her because she has recently returned from the meeting of the Democratic National Committee um, that took place in San Francisco last week. So I just thought it would be great to get some hot off the presses takes from her on what was going on at that meeting. So welcome, Julia. Hey, thank you. And welcome and hello to everyone. <laughs> it's great to have you on. So um, before we dig into the, the DNC stuff, do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself so people know who you are and what you're where you're coming from? Oh, absolutely. So my name is Julia Bryan. I'm the global chair of Democrats Abroad. As everyone may know, um, Democrats Abroad is the Democratic uh, Party that represents Americans who live outside the United States. We are one of 57 um, state parties that is underneath the Democratic um, National Committee. And we actually have uh, DNC members who travel to our DNC meetings every, um, every year, twice a year, generally, to meet with the other DNC members. I am based in Prague, Czech Republic. I'm an elected um, a leader of the D Democrats Abroad, and I uh, have been working within the global organization since about 2013, but I've been the chair for, uh, this is my second term. I, I was reelected this May. And you, like everyone else who works for Democrats Abroad, um, are doing this on a purely voluntary basis. This is not your career, is it? <laughs> That's right. But uh, as the chair of Democrats Broad, it is a full-time um, full position. Yeah, <laughs> Nothing more else than full-time. More than. <laughs> we could probably use three or four of you and still not have enough, uh, not have wish, enough to do the I work. Wish I, I wish I could clone myself. I actually have a clone. She's my, my identical twin sister, but she actually has a job, so she is not working for us yet. I keep I was, trying. How selfish of her. I know. Can you believe it? <laughs> well, like like the Castro brothers, um, you know, Julian and, and Joaquin Castro. I think there's a there's a famous story about them swapping places once when they had um, each had political events that the other that they couldn't physically get to. They just switched places. Maybe not great practice, but hilarious to picture. Well, any twin has uh, knows that they always want to do that. You know, there's always that urge. <laughs> there's always that urge. Um so the reason we're talking today is specifically because of the DNC meeting in San Francisco last, it was last Friday, wasn't it? It started on uh, Wednesday and with the Association of State Democratic Committees. And then Thursday was the very first day and we wrapped up on Saturday. Great. So I know enough about um, the DNC to know that almost no one knows anything about the DNC who isn't actually in it. Um, there's a lot of um, confusion from the general voting public about what the DNC actually is and, and how they work. So would you mind just giving us a quick sense of how is the DNC structured, who who gets to be a DNC member and how, and kind of what, what are they doing? What was the purpose of the meeting, for example? I'll step back to the beginning. Basically, um, the DNC, or the Demo Democratic National Committee, it's the formal governing body of the party. Um, it's been around for a really long time, over 100 years. And uh, I like to think of it in, in different ways. You know, we all talk about the DNC, but in fact, the DNC is several different groups. It's um, a leadership group. So it's a team of national officers who are elected every four years. Um, that's going to be the chair, like Tom Prez, and then their vice chairs and um, treasurer and secretary. And then there's also DNC staff. The DNC staff work in Washington and uh, they, they, they have a voter protection team. They have a lot of different teams within the DNC building itself that are really working for the organization. They're fantastic. I, I love meeting with them whenever I go to Washington. Then we have our members. There are 447 members, I believe, who are elected or appointed as delegates. and. Um, they are elected by uh, state, so each state has at least two DNC members. Um, there are also state chairs and vice chairs that are automatic 
um, uh, DNC members. And then there are also people who like current and former presidents. Um, then there's all these different um, committee representatives that are also part of the DNC. And then finally, there are at-large members that represent different constituencies and leaders who are nominated by the chair and approved by um, the larger group of DNC members. So that's our membership as a, again, it's um, the elected officials, it's the staff, and it's um, what we call the DNC members who are um, coming from all over the place, uh, from all the different states and constituencies. So just to give us a sense of scale, like roughly how many people are we talking about here? Hundreds, thousands? Mm, well, there are 447 uh, members and then um, about a dozen officials. And I'm not really sure how large the staff is. It's probably about 20, 30 people. Okay. So, you know, it's somewhere in the 500-ish range. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, good. So I've got a mental map now. Mm-hmm. And so the DNC itself, um, it, as the party leadership, it is not, it, it has a lot of influence over the primary, but it doesn't directly run the primary elections. Can you explain the kind of the difference between how the party sets the rules and then who actually runs primary elections? Well, it's really important for the DNC to take a step back from, um, uh, from parts of the primary. Um, so as you guys all know, um, the 50 states actually run, hold their own primaries, but then we have each state, like the territories, Washington and Democrats abroad, that are also holding uh, primaries. So what we do is um, the DNC gives us a big a big um, template to follow. Um, it's called a delegate selection plan template. And the, the reason they call it the delegate selection plan is that, of course, the primary is basically aimed at... Um, getting an idea of, of the constituency's interest in um, each presidential candidate and electing delegates that will then go to the national convention and ch- choose the um, uh, the eventual democratic candidate. So they, they tell us, they give us a, a roadmap. We create our own version and customization of that roadmap. We send it back to them. They approve it and then we can roll with it. Um, most states are um, lucky because their state actually uh, runs the elections themselves. Democrats abroad runs our own elections. So that's a lot of work on our shoulders that most states don't have to, to deal with. Got it. And so the, the, the states themselves will deliver the actual elections or, or caucuses, um, which is another mechanism that we use to choose candidates, as in Iowa. Um, but the other role that the DNC has is they have some role in setting the 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 more recently they've been working with the major tv networks to help coordinate the how the debates will work what what is the role in that because that's actually a relatively recent change it used to be that the networks would just try and put together candidates to host debates when they could um famously ronald reagan paid for his own debate um and uh, but but more recently the dnc has gotten more involved in making sure that everything is fair and equitable in terms of which candidates are in um and that was the source of some of the kind of controversy this this meeting. Is that more or less correct? That's right. So what the DNC is really trying to do is make sure that there's no way anyone can say they're putting a, their thumb on the scale yeah. for um, uh, the Democratic um, candidate. And that's really important for them to be able to take a step back from the debate process. Basically, what they try to do is set the rules at the very beginning um, and then take a step back and say, uh, um, Media channel X, it's over to you what questions you ask and how you run the format. You've seen all, um, all sorts of different uh, ways of, of hosting a, a debate um, from CNN to, um, you know, the, the the way we saw it last time. And, and um, so it's really, and then I'm sure ABC is going to be a, a really different uh, ballgame too. ABC actually has a lot of different channels that the debate will be streamed over as opposed to CNN had a much more limited um, selection. So every every time, uh, you know, a, a different channel is going to be having a different format, a different, like, focus. You know, I, I believe with CNN, it was much more, um, let's try to get everybody arguing on stage and see what happens. Um, and hopefully ABC is going to be a little bit different. Um, and we'll see a different side of the candidates that way. And I'm sure that they all want to uh, be as unique as possible so that um, they stand out from the crowd. Absolutely. But, yeah. I mean, I think that's just an important part of it. Um, and and then in terms of uh, other aspects of the debate, you know, we are 
one of the big questions is who gets to be in the de on the debate stage, and that's what we've seen as um, from one debate to the from the first to the second to the third, the criteria is getting harder, and of course um, that means that we have more limited participants. Yeah. So in this next coming debate, instead of being two nights of debates with ten candidates each, which frankly I found exhausting, I'm gonna I'm not gonna lie, <laughs> it's it's probably gonna wind up being one night of debates with probably about ten candidates. In fact, we know already it's going to be one night on the 12th and it's going to be 10 candidates. We even know where they're going to stand at this point. Excellent. Mark your calendars, everybody. It's locked in. That's right. Fabulous. Okay. So, um, so there are the, so that would be the third official debate. There are going to be some more official, officially sanctioned DNC debates. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean that candidates can't participate in other debates as well if they want to. Well, actually, they, they um, are really limited if they participate in other debates. And by a debate, it's a really strict definition of mm -hmm. more than one candidate standing up on stage and answering questions at the same time. At the same time. Got it. Then they are uh, kicked off the official debate stage. Okay. So they would not be welcome in future Democratic debates if they participated in a non-sanctioned debate directly against another candidate. That's correct. Okay. And that's, so that's the background to this question about the climate change debate. So now, as I understand it, um, there has been um, a proposal, a recommendation, um, strongly supported by a lot of activists and indeed by, by some of the candidates themselves, that there be a dedicated debate specifically focused on climate change as an issue. Obviously, climate change is such a big issue that, you know, you can cover quite a lot of territory um, in a debate. Um, but the DNC has been explicitly opposed to having single issue debates. Um, and there was um, eventually a decision was taken um, at this meeting. I, mean, I think there was always the determination not to have a single issue, issue debate ever. And then there were a series of resolutions, um, kind of some debate about this that came up at the San Francisco meeting. Can you just give us quickly a factual backdrop of what actually happened um, and where we wound up with it? So there were several resolutions on the table. The first one was uh, just saying, hey, look, we need to have a climate change debate. Please um, uh, be flexible and, and change the rules and allow this. The second one was a resolution that said, OK, um, if we can't have a climate change debate, we understand that the rules were set in, in the first place. So um, can you allow um, a series of online for forums that um, uh, where candidates can be on the same stage, but speaking at different times? Right. Um, that's just, it, it was designed to really um, ensure a lot of people were uh, um, paying attention to it. That's the, the whole um, crux of the matter is that uh, activists and um, anyone who's concerned about the climate, which is a lot of different people within the party, really know that uh, this is a great opportunity to get people's eyeballs on the issue. And that's why it's become such an, a major um, arguing point for people yeah. is that everyone wants the attention to be focused on this issue. Right. And they know that that's uh, the debate is one of the best ways to do that. And what is, what has been the candidate's position on this? Um, all of them have come out and said they are for a climate change debate. Right. So they would be eager to get on that stage. Um, but the DNC's position is is different. So why why has the DNC why has there been such a strong determination not to have a single issue debate? I mean, leaving aside the merits or otherwise of the issue, what's the, what is the problem that the DNC is concerned about with specifically any single issue debate or particularly a climate change one? Well, it's really about the fact that they set the rules ahead of time. And mm -hmm. if they opened up and said, okay, now we're going to change and we're going to, for this one issue, we're going to have a single issue debate. Um, well, then they feel, you know, and probably rightly so that then uh, other uh, lobbying groups are going to say, hey, if you have a climate change debate, then let's have a debate on um, X issue and let's have a debate on Y issue. And that just opens a whole nother um, can of worms. And um, right now they already have 12 debates organized. They don't know how that's going to work, who's going to be doing the organizing, et cetera. So th this is the argument against having a, um, a, a, you know, a single foc issue focused uh, debate at this point. That was the, their major argument. Right. So it's kind of like the DNC is in the position of having to play bad cop in saying, you know, it's all very well that you'd like to have a debate, but actually the rules are the rules and we're sticking by them. That's right. It's a really tricky uh, situation to be in. Um, but that's that's where that's where they got landed um, when the conversation started happening th this summer. Right. 
And so, but like, let's go a little further back though, because as you say, that was how, that was the rules as they were always set up. Why not have single issue debates? What's the, what is the concern about when we establish the rules? Why did we establish them in that way? What would be the problem with having a single issue debate? I I don't really have a lot of um, knowledge about why that decision was made. My guess would be that uh, they think that they'll be more interest from the American public if there's more um, issues, if, if it's not going to be just one um, uh, one set of questions and talking points um, that we'll hear from. The other, of course, is that some candidates are really single issue candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, and it would be perceived as favoring one candidate over another. Right. So, for example, obviously, in this case, Jay Inslee, who recently dropped out of the race, um, really entered the race very much as a climate change candidate. So I suppose the concern would be, understandably, that that would any such debate would then automatically be favoring him and any other candidates that have made it their signature policy, whereas other candidates might have similarly good climate climate change policies, but also we want to talk about other things. So it, it's maybe not equitable. That's right. I, I think that's uh, a, a big, large part of it. But I also think it's um, a question of, you know, Will people actually pay attention, and uh, will they be interested in this one single issue? So I, I think it's a it's a a, a dueling um, problem and 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 uh, rationale. But I guess you know coming back to that, it's what's the problem if they're not paying attention? Because I'm just playing devil's advocate here. The people who care about the climate would watch a climate change debate. The people who don't care about the climate won't watch it. But why is that a problem? It's a good question. I, I, I think it's a problem because uh, they want as many um, people paying attention to the candidates. They want, you know, they it, it might be an issue with um, the news organization. The, the news organization really requires a certain number of people and, um, you know, watching the TV and watching the show and, and, and you know, their eyeballs. So that, I think that could be, this is just my own um, kind of guesstimate about yeah. why, but I, I would guess that that's one of the issues. They, they want to make it as broad as possible to allow um, the media channel to um, be able to optimize who's watching. Okay. So coming back to the meeting itself. So these two resolution, resolutions were put forward, presumably by DNC members themselves, um, and debated and discussed. What was the feeling in the room during those discussions? Uh, well, now there are two times when the, they were discussed. So the first was within the resolutions committee meeting, mm-hmm. and that was earlier uh, during the week. And uh, the resolutions committee were the ones who were discussing it. There was a lot of energy and uh, anxiety in the room. There were tons of people gathered around to uh, listen, and mm-hmm. uh, and and you know they couldn't. Most of the people who were there could not speak because they were not resolutions committee members. But there was just a lot of attention within that meeting yeah. to what was happening. Um, and um, then there was the, the general session. And the general session was when um, different members of the body stood up to support, um, either in support of uh, Resolution 4 or against Resolution 4. Resolution 4 was the second resolution. And that was the resolution that called for an online forum that would allow candidates to be present at the same time um, uh, discussing climate the climate issue so it was so, kind of like the second resolution was almost like saying okay we'll technically stick to the letter of the rule but let's just tweak it a little bit so that we can kind of it was like almost like let's just adjust the rule a little bit yes, so that we yep. can squeeze in and it had been even tweaked even further and that was uh one of the things that was a bit confusing about that resolution it was not a perfect resolution which is why some people didn't vote for it because uh it had been taken from its original perp- you know the original language and tweaked just a little bit to make it really um, move um, back towards uh, a, a regular debate. It just had not been one of the official debates. But the language was a bit confusing by the time we were voting on it right. on Saturday. Okay. And ultimately, they were both resolutions were voted down. Well, um, uh, the f- first resolution, the one that was uh, from Tina Podlaski, yeah. that was not that was not considered as dropped from the resolution package. Got it. Um, and so the f- resolution four. Uh, I love a just, bit of I love a bit of meeting procedure. Oh yeah, exactly. It's a lot of different procedures. So uh, so resolution four made it through and made it into the packet that we were going to vote on as a body. At that point, um, during the general session, um, uh, it was announced that uh, that that uh, the chair was recommending that uh, and made there was a motion made to drop resolution four from the packet on the uh, during the general meeting. Yeah, and that was the motion that we were voting um, for. Right. Okay. 
So hang on. So the, the so the, <laughs> the so the motion that we were voting on was right. There was a motion on the t floor that said, uh, um, there's a motion on the floor to drop resolution four from the resolution packet, which was then going to be voted on by the body. Right. So a no vote was in support so of four. Right. And a yes vote was against four. Right. Got it. So you ultimately didn't vote on the resolution itself, but voted on not voting on the resolution, which was a way of voting on whether you wanted the resolution's substance to exactly. go forward. Right. Which is such a DNC thing to do. Well, you know, <laughs> or, parliamentary procedure, it's all like that. I know. I love a bit of parliamentary procedure. It's funny how that detail didn't make it into any of the press reports. The, I know. It's so didn't... true. Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> Breaking news. Breaking news. Um, and so do, do you mind saying how you voted on that issue? I voted uh, in support of the resolution, so I voted no. Okay, so you voted no in, no to say that you would like to vote eventually on the resolution, which was a way of saying you would like to support the substance of the resolution. That's right. God, I, it's... I, my, I voted no, do not <laughs> drop the resolution from the resolution packet. You voted no to vote yes. Yes, exactly. Right. So you personally would have liked to see a climate change resolution, uh, a climate change debate. And I think a lot of people in the room would have, but ultimately it was not supported. It must have been a tough decision. Well, um, you know, of course, I, I am also a rule follower. I yep. think anyone who deals with the parliamentary procedure likes to see, uh, you know, you, you basically start adapting yourself towards that. But yep. when it comes down to it, um, something that we can discuss in a room where we understand all the intricacies and all the details of a not so perfect resolution and say, okay, this resolution is not great. Let's come up with something different. Well, when you look at it from the wider uh, perspective of the world, those details are lost. Just like the detail that we were just discussing was lost about the, how um, this, this motion was voted on. Yeah. Um, I knew that what was going to happen is uh, the headlines after we came out of that meeting would be if we voted against it, DNC votes against the climate. Yeah. And, you know, that is not a good message to send. We need to be a party that is flexible. We need to be a party that uh, is listening to our, you know, the younger generation who wants desperately for this to be a big conversation, who wants their existential angst to be acknowledged and, um, and for politicians to be saying, this is what I'm going to do about it. It's so important. So that's why I voted um, in support of the resolution. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think a lot of candidates afterwards came out saying, you know, we're disappointed in this. We would we were looking forward. As you say, they wanted to have a climate change debate themselves. So, um, you know, it, it, it was a tough call for the DNC in that they were going against the interests of, of like the stated wish of the, the candidates. Um, but equally, um, I think, you know, that the, the underlying concern was if we allow if we allow a change in this area, it's very hard to argue that, for example, gun control doesn't deserve its own debate because that's a very important issue that young people are concerned about. It's very hard to argue that, for example, um, you know, immigration, which is a huge, huge topic with lots of different aspects to it to, to discuss, doesn't deserve, quote unquote, its own debate. So, yeah, I can I can understand why there were strong feelings on both sides. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. And of course, poverty is the biggest issue that we're not talking sure. about. Um, it's it's, you know. Um, it's so endemic across the United States, it's something that we as Americans abroad don't understand until we go back and visit and visit big cities and see yeah. just how prevalent it is. And, you know, oh. of course, San Francisco is an amazing My uh, God. place. I was shocked when I went to San Francisco. I recently came back from San Francisco as well, as we were just discussing. I was absolutely gobsmacked by the crippling homelessness that I saw, just the scale of it, which is beyond anything I, I remember. Right. Well, it, it, San Francisco has a famous homeless population. And it's grown recently, um, and you know, it just uh, it brings it home to you the in, the real horrors of poverty that U, uh, U.S. citizens are facing. I um, we we had some uh, interesting, really uh, dramatic sessions where we were talking about the 43% of Americans who are living and experiencing poverty, and it's just it's um, it's horrifying to think about um, all the different policies that are in place to make sure that they that uh, rich people get richer and poor people do not get the support they need. Well, I think that's the thing. I mean, I think San Francisco is is the perfect test case for the argument that it isn't it, that it is in a way it is poverty led by inequality because San Francisco is not an area is not a part of the country that is itself by any means suffering. It's an extremely wealthy part of the country. In fact, it's where much of the nation's wealth is generated. Um, and yet the crippling inequality has meant that housing prices have gone up for everyone, making it harder for <clears throat> even people with, you know, with jobs 
to actually afford to live and work um, in any sustainable way. So inequality is fundamental to the issue of poverty as we see it. Yes, exactly. And as you said, San Francisco is a really good example, especially um, people just cannot live downtown anymore unless um, they're, they're wealthy. It's, it's changed tremendously from what it used to be a few uh, decades ago. Yeah. So, yeah, so there's a lot of important stuff going on in the country that, That's right. that exactly. needs talking exactly. about. And frankly, we could be debating 24-7 all the time and still not take, get to the heart of all of it. That's um, right. But you had the rare opportunity of hearing directly from some of the candidates about some of these issues um, because <clears throat> a number of candidates came to the DNC forum. Um, mm-hmm. And that must have been quite a thrill. It was it was great to hear from them. We uh, heard from um, nine in person and uh, four via vid- video, and it, you know it's always interesting to see people um, one at a time up on stage. And you know, of course, I'm always like measuring to see who gets the most standing ovations and you know, the, <laughs> the applause of... meter. Exactly. I was like, oh my gosh, I should have downloaded the app. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there is one. I don't know yet, but I was like, that would have been really cool. Um, I did not do that, but uh, it was really, I was taking notes and it was, it was kind of fascinating to see how people were responding. Yeah. No, it's, it's an interesting year for that because in the past, um, the members of the DNC, such as yourself, um, you are a super delegate. Congratulations. Um, in the past, DNC members have um, been able to act as super delegates, famously voting. Um, they're free to vote however they like, irrespective of the, um, how the kind of state state the state that they represent how their will is expressed um and that has been in the past very controversial they've actually made a change this year to the rules so that at the convention for the candidate selection super delegates will no longer be voting in the first round of ballots that's <clears throat> right that way. Mm-hmm. so and in fact we're called automatic delegates now Automatic delegates. No longer. We're not super, super anymore. We've lost our. <laughs> you you used to be super. Now you're just yeah. automatic. Oh, exactly. God, that sounds like such a demotion. Yeah. No, that's fine. <laughs> it's 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 a democracy. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, but I think that's the point. I think a lot of a lot of I was going to say super delegates. A lot of automatic delegates themselves were uncomfortable previously with their role in the process. They didn't want to be the deciding factor in terms of who the candidate would be. And this year, that's that's very unlikely to be the case it would only be in subsequent ballots if if it got to the point of the can the conference that if the if the convention were unable to choose a candidate maybe on the second or third ballot then superdelegates automatic delegates dnc members would then be able to step in That's but right. it, it starts it's it kicks in on the second ballot right Absolutely. So although you are all, including yourself, Julia, important and influential party members, you are no longer kind of the endorsements that have the kind of direct impact that they used to have on the candidate selection. Um, but still, quite a lot of candidates want to come and speak to you because you are influential people in your t- in your states and communities. Um, and so how was the vibe in the room? Oh, it was it was uh, really interesting. You know, um, they started off with Michael Bennett. He, he came on stage, and uh, we had some. You know, we had Michael Bennett, Cory Booker, uh, Julian Castro, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar. Um, they all spoke um, at the very beginning, and you know, it was it was fantastic to hear. I, we were very lucky. We were right up on the second um, uh, row because our our team members are fantastic about getting good seats. We're always very, very close <laughs> to the front if we can be. So it's we an organizing right behind, task in itself. Yeah, exactly. We were right behind Christine Pelosi. We, we want to make sure Democrats Abroad is always visible. And so um, our team does a great job of making that happen. Um, so we were able to see the candidates come up on stage, you know, uh, and, and really just, um, of course, I was spending time looking both at the stage and behind us to see how people were responding, because that's, of course, really interesting. And um, well, the thing I just wanted to, I think it's really important for everyone to understand is all of our candidates are so, they're all so articulate. They're all so inspiring. And, um, you know, you come away going, oh, my God, we have an amazing stable of candidates to choose from. I, we're so lucky as a, uh, as a party. Yeah, absolutely. And a, a wonderful, I always think that's when I see the debates, a wonderful diversity and breadth of candidates, you know, from different parts of the country with different backgrounds. It's really kind of lovely to see um, as, a, as a spectrum. Exactly. It, it is really great, especially, you know, I'm, I pay attention so much to our, who our candidates are, because as chair, I'm um, in touch with all the campaigns at the, at the moment. And so I'm always going up and down our, the list going, hmm, and this, you know, this person's in this state and this state and this state, and uh, there are representatives, senators, governors, mayors, um, authors, 
et cetera. And it's, uh, it's really interesting to, to see that breadth. And you had, so you had four um, speak to you by video link. Who spoke to you by video? Um, we heard from uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, mm-hmm. um, Joe Biden, and I'm trying to remember who else it was. I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, it was, oh, um, who else? No, but there are good videos. And, you know, it's, uh, Gabbard could, Tulsi Gabbard couldn't be with us because she's actually was in the South Pacific on a tour of duty. Fair, yeah, fair excuse. Great we'll excuse. let that one go. Really, exactly. And uh, the other guys were campaigning. Yep. So I know Tom Biden, uh, Joe Biden was actually in New Hampshire uh, that weekend, and uh, Pete Buttigieg was not able to be there. Chastin was. We were able to meet with Chastin as a um, our delegation was able to. Oh meet my God, him. I love him. He's so cute. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's really fun. We met yeah. with him in, in Berlin two years ago. Yeah. So it's well, it's like a little home I, party, you know. I'm I am all for eighth grade six, social studies teachers playing a bigger role in American politics. I know he's very he knows his his history. That's for well, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Eighth grade social studies teacher knows more about American history and politics than most people in government. I would argue. Oh, that's very likely the case. It's so funny. So, um, did anything in terms of the messages that the candidates were delivering to you? Um, did can you just summarize quickly, kind of what you felt like were the key points that they were trying to get across to this organization? Well, they all mentioned um, climate change as an mm-hmm. issue that was important to them. Um, the majority talked about poverty and the importance of addressing poverty, which I thought was really um, important after we had just heard from Reverend William Barber about poverty. And he'd just given this amazing, impassioned speech about it, which had was really a hard act to follow, frankly. So it was, uh, I'm glad that they were on, you know, they were on key and, and had heard, they knew what they should should bring up after that. Um, you know, they each were, of course, trying to uh, stand out from the crowd. So talking about their signature policy positions, um, several of them mentioned uh, their problems with the DNC's debate uh, rules, as you can imagine, the people who had not gotten um, onto the third debate. So they so, mentioned it directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and was the room receptive to that criticism? It, people did not uh, respond either way to that, that point. It was a, kind of a neutral. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah. And okay. Seth Moulton actually uh, came on stage and uh, declared that he was stepping down. Yeah, that must have been quite a moment. How, how did that go down? Well, everyone had already heard about it. So uh, we were like, oh, he's here. Oh, well, good luck and best of, a, you know, of luck to you for the, your next steps. Excellent. Um, so, and, and did anyone surprise you in terms of either what they said or how they approached their... To, well, to well there was one surprise, and that was um, Joe Sestak come up, came on stage. I yeah, knew, Joe Sestak. Yeah. <laughs> so I knew he has been running because, of course, I have to be in touch with all the campaigns. But um, there was a lot of people in the audience going, oh, who is, who is he? <laughs> <laughs> so that was it was interesting to look around and say, hmm, you know, these guys don't have to deal with, uh, with the campaigns, you can tell, because they had no idea who he was. And, you know, he, he was a fresh voice. Right. No one had uh, any idea what he was representing. So it was interesting to see him up there. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, was Tom Steyer also there? Yes, he was. And uh, we actually were able to meet with him as well. Mm-hmm. What did he have to say? So Tom Steyer, just for background, billionaire, hedge fund manager. Um, he has been, he entered the race relatively recently. Um, but before that, he has been um, spending a lot of, money and time uh, putting together a campaign calling for Trump's impeachment. Um, so I'm curious to know kind of, again, what did he have to say to the group? He actually did not mention impeachment. And, oh, uh, interesting. It was, it was more about supporting uh, the, or, the states and, and, you know, getting out there. And, and you know, I have to say um, his speech did not stand out from the crowd in terms of uh, anything too unusual. Which is interesting in itself, isn't it? Because yes, he, it he puts himself across as something, somebody very different, but. Um, yeah. Exactly. I mean, you know, of course, as as we've all seen from the debates, the um, Andrew, the pe- the person who really stands out from the crowd, actually, there are two of them, Marion Williamson and Andrew Yang, both um, come across as not as politicians, but as uh, different types of people. So it, the same, char- you know, was true when they presented to them um, to us. And of course, Joe Sestak also stands out. He's more of a military uh, character, as he he's a um, former. Um, admiral so he was having he had much more of a let's talk about the navy right uh, tone <laughs> than he did let's talk about policy 
Excellent. Okay. Um, well, it sounds like sounds like it must have been a fantastic room to be in. Um, oh, fi- absolutely. Final thought before we go. Obviously, the presidency is extremely important, but it's only one of three co-equal branches of government. And then DNC does a lot of work that isn't specific to the presidential campaign. Anything else that happened during the meeting that you want to let us know about? Well, being able to talk to you know, one of the, the great things about these meetings is that's when Democrats abroad basically basically goes and pitches what we do to the state parties. So we were really meeting with all the states, as many states as possible. I think I met with 40 different states and saying, hey, work with us. Uh, We can help you with uh, your study abroad outreach, your military outreach, your state legislators. And, you know, because just a few votes really make a difference. So in so many cases for these states, that was really interesting. And then, of course, we're talking with states about their Senate campaigns, because, of course, the Senate is so important. Arizona, we're um, talking to Arizona and South Carolina, the, and of course, Georgia, and Georgia became more interesting after the, the meeting. You know, there's just a lot of energy, not just for the presidential, but for all the other um, elections up and down the ballot, because I love the fact that everyone now knows that we can't pay, we can't just pay attention to the president, presidential elections. We need to pay attention to everything. It was yeah. fantastic. So a lot of good energy in the room. Oh, it was great. I, you know, one of the most um, fun moments of the meeting is um, on Saturday morning when we have our regional caucuses. That's when all the DNC members divide up by areas of the country. There's the South, the Eastern, the Midwestern, and the Western. And, uh, you know, you have like these families of, of states. Everybody knows each other because you're caucusing together all the time. And it's just a, it's a wonderful time to... Um, to share your experiences, what you, what worked well, what didn't work well, what you're up to now. And uh, it's also a great time for us to really, again, share what we do. And so I ran from, I, w- I presented to the South and then I presented to the East. And then we had um, Martha, who was going to be on the call, but couldn't make it. She presented in, in the um, West. And our vice chair, Alex Montgomery, presented um, in the Midwest. And you know, after that, everyone comes up to you and says, hey, you won Florida in 2018 can you win for us too and of course we're going yes we can yes we can of course we can (laughs) we will fix it all so that was great and another great moment was i got i did get to meet speaker pelosi and it was just such an honor i was introduced to her um, by the chair of florida terry uh, terry rizzo and she was she said to to the speaker she said julia bryan was the um the head of the team that won our only statewide race for us um democrats abroad and i was like this is the reason, you know, one of the <laughs> reasons that we do the work that we do, you know, for these moments. It was, that it was, is a great way to be introduced. It was a fantastic introduction. And, <laughs> and uh, I just wish everyone else could have been there with me because we all work so hard. Well, thank you for sharing your experience. It sounds like it was it was quite a day and we've got quite a quite a period ahead of us uh, to look forward to. So I'm glad to know that we've got some fired up DNC members ready to help us carry that through have you got a few minutes to just stick around and play a quick version of the gut check game oh what's the gut check game sure i'll try it so the gut check game is a little thing we do on this podcast where we um i have in my trusty red Sox baseball cap i have placed some sort of quotes and comments or um interesting tidbits pulled from the campaign trail in this case i've just pulled out some direct quotations that people said during the dnc meeting and um i just pull it out of the hat randomly read it out and we just kind of react to it um check our guts sounds good great Okay, um, so I'll pull one up. Okay, the first one I found here, this is actually a quote from a, a, a climate change protester. Um, she says that when she speaks to her three-year-old nephew and he's asking her about the environment, she says, when he asks, what did you hear? When he, what, did, what did you do when you heard what was happening to Earth? She wanted to have an answer for him. So my gut check uh, response would be, this is why we are doing the work we're doing. There's nothing more important than uh, saving, you know, anything, any policy we can push to help save the environment. This is why I'm the chair of Democrats Abroad and, um, and you know, putting aside my regular work to do this work. And we will do all that is in our power to make sure that three-year-old has a happy life and is able to grow up in an environment that is not under threat. 100%. I mean, there are some issues that you react to intellectually and then there are some issues that react to as a parent and for me the climate is one of the ones where i mean i am going to live through 
crippling climate change in my lifetime, but I worry about my daughter's lifetime and her children. Um, so yeah, it's something that's more and more getting very emotional for me. So I think that quote really resonates with me. I, I recognize that feeling. Exactly. Um, here is a quote from Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. Um, during her speech, <clears throat> it says she referenced Trump's recent comments about purchasing Greenland and says, <clears throat> excuse me. So while the president is off talking about buying Greenland and pissing off the entire country of Denmark, I'll be fighting for working people. Do you know the difference between Donald Trump and Greenland? Greenland is not for sale. That was a great moment. And I have to tell you, everyone stood up and cheered. And then we <laughs> wrote down the quote so we could use it ourselves. That's kind of hilarious. I do love that. <laughs> and it's also, it's funny because it's true. It's so true. It was great. And I think within five minutes, it was a meme on, on uh, Instagram. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so it was great. Along with the puffy fish quote. I don't know if you heard that one too. No, tell me the puffy fish yeah, Well, quote. the puffy fish, fish quote, you should look it up. But there's some great memes about um, how Trump is a puffy fish. <laughs> Why is he a puffy fish? I don't, I don't even know. It was, he, there was this uh, wonderful moment, you know, and Trump is a puffy fish. And I was like, no, is this one of these Japanese <laughs> puffy fishes or what type of puffy yeah, fish? What kind of puffy fish? Yeah, but it was really <laughs> hilarious, actually. I love that. I want reporters to go out and like investigate the puffy fish story. Yeah, it's great. I mean, well, just look online. You'll find uh, plenty of um, Twitter uh, right. illustrations. Fabulous. Um, we'll do another one. Uh, oh, here is a quote from Speaker Pelosi, who we were talking about just a minute ago. Um, she's talking about the introduction of a $15 minimum wage. And she says, quote, we will make them too hot to handle until the Senate passes the legislation. There will be hell to pay if the Senate doesn't pass the legislation. Strong words. I think it's uh, strong words that need to happen, because as we had just seen from uh, Reverend Barber, Poverty is so important and uh, it's such a major issue that's just affecting so many um, members of the uh, U.S. population and we have to do something about it. Setting a, a bare minimum wage of $15 begins to address it. I mean, it's not enough. I think it should be more than $15, but at least people will not be working for $7 and, and having to work almost you know, 20 hours a day. Yeah. It's interesting because I think Pelosi is um, just a phenomenal leader. And one of the ways in which she's a phenomenal leader is she's often a little bit close to her chest in terms of she'll say what she wants to do, but she doesn't often use that kind of fiery, um, you know, there will be hell to pay rhetoric. So when she does, I really prick up my ears and pay attention to it. So, um, you know, my gut check was like, oh, she means it this one. <laughs> we're, we're really going to work on this. So I will be I excited to watch that happen. I am too. And I really think it's it's necessary. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Um, should we just do one more before sure. we go? Uh, let's see. Oh, I've picked two out and I'll just pick one at random. So I'll give you the choice. Do you want to hear the Booker quote or the Sanders quote? Oh, let's go for the Booker quote. The Booker quote. Um, Booker says, Cory Booker says, this country is now looking for our vision. And I was taught as a little boy in church that without vision, you perish. That's a very Booker Booker quote. That is a very Booker Booker quote. Um, we actually met with Booker as a delegation, and uh, he, you know he is—he's someone who uh, has vision, who listens really well, and um, who responded well to our our delegation. And so, a quote like that just uh, wraps up who he is as an individual. I think you know he is someone who um, he says, "Okay, this is our vision. This is how we're going to do it." He's a numbers guy. You know, we all know how. I mean, I don't know how many degrees he has. Maybe three or four from. He went to Oxford and. Yeah. Um, and he's Stanford. super smart. He's super smart. And, and also he like rescues him. people from burning buildings. So he's, you oh, know, yeah, super exactly. vibe too. <laughs> exactly. And, but again, you know, it's, um, but I, you can be super smart you can be good at numbers, but if you don't, don't have a vision, it's hard to get stuff done. So I really admire that about him as, uh, you know, all the candidates are great. And, but I think making sure that you have a vision when you're running is a very important part of, uh, your candidacy. Absolutely. Well, listen, Julia, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Um, I know we are very much in the early days of the primary, many months off of anyone voting, although it feels like I've been doing this forever. <laughs> um, but it, it's it's exciting, as you as you say, to know that there are so many excellent candidates from which to choose. And, and thank you for the work that you do in trying to help us run and, and manage a, a successful primary. And everyone should look out for the Democrats Abroad Global Primary, which will be happening when? 
Well, the primary starts on March 3rd and runs to March 10th. But before that, and actually in um, in two days, we're about to start the petition process ah. for candidates to get on our ballot. So we are going to be sending out links to every American abroad uh, who's in our database and publishing widely on social as well. Um, the links where people can go and they can sign a petition to get their candidate of choice or multiple candidates. In fact, you you can sign for everyone um, to ask uh, to get them on our primary ballot. It's a great way to do outreach, and we're hoping people will um, uh, will just join in and sign up for everybody. Excellent. You, putting my you heard up. it here. You heard it here first. If there's a candidate that you want to make sure, either that you're supporting or you just want to make sure has a chance to be voted for in the Democrats Abroad Global Primary, get on those links and make sure they're on the ballot. Thank you so much for your time, Julia. It's been, as always, a delight to talk to you. It's a great pleasure to talk to you, too. All Thanks right. So take, take care. Bye-bye. Ciao. And that's it. As always, you can find me on Twitter. I am at Karen JR. That's at K-A-R-I-N-J-R on Twitter. Or you can leave a voicemail by clicking on the link in the uh, in the episode uh, or podcast description. Um, I encourage you, if you are an American citizen listening to the sound of my voice, please go ahead and register to vote or request your absentee ballot ASAP, even if you think you are already registered, you should always re-register in every election year just to make sure that your ballot will um, will come to you. Um, if you are an American overseas like myself, go to www.votefromabroad.org. If you are an American back home, the website is vote.org. Um, I will speak to you again next Friday, as always. Until then, have a great week. <laughs>